You've all heard of Saint Nick, correct? Did you know Saint Nick was actually a Greek Christian who lived in the fourth century? He was known for selling off his possessions and giving the money to the poor, and he had dedicated his life to serving those who were sick or suffering. He often left coins in people's shoes, which sounds weird to us because we don't have that culture, but it didn't seem weird to them. It was a sneaky way of giving somebody a gift anonymously. It was common for fathers, like Glenn talked about having a dowry in Tanzanian culture, it was common in their culture for fathers to give money to the families of the prospective husbands, right? And there was a father with three daughters, and he did not have the money to pay their dowry, and St. Nicholas put gold in each of their three daughter's shoes. And so in Italy, St. Nicholas's feast day was celebrated with rich meals, gift giving, and festivals. But in other European countries like Germany and the Netherlands, children on St. Nick's feast day, they would hang a special boot over the fireplace or the front door. And in the morning, they would discover uh, presents in their stockings or, or special St. Nicholas boots. So the history of St. Nicholas and his good deeds was part of the inspiration, as many of you know, for the modern sort of Santa Claus myth. Is anyone still perpetuating that as though it were a fact to their children? Anyway. Okay, there we go. Thanks, Thanks, Gabe, for keeping that going. We did have a picture with Santa Claus last night, and his beard was glorious. I said, hey, I see you. That's real. And he said, yeah, it is real. And he's like, and you got a beard too. There's some sort of weird man-beard connection. It's like dudes with big trucks. They all notice each other, and they're like, that's what's up. No, yeah, that's what's up. No, you. No, you. You to man. No, you to man. There's an interesting thing that happened on the Feast of St. Nicholas later on at the end of the message. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Especially for a Jewish person to make. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. No one can know God unless God makes himself known. No one could find God unless God reveals himself. No one is smart enough to comprehend God. No one is good enough to want God. No one is strong enough to reach God. No one would know God unless God makes himself known.
There's a thing that happens when we grow up in church, and it is that we believe that our child understanding of God is the faith. And as we mature, oftentimes, we replace a childish version of faith with a more mature version of unbelief. It's a form of straw man argument. Do you know what a straw man argument is? A straw man argument is where you take your opponent's worst examples and you pit them against your best examples. A childish version of the faith is like a little crayon drawing that the dad puts on the refrigerator. It's not good, but he loves it because his kid made it. And compared to the reality, your best thoughts of God are crayon drawings of God. God cannot only not be known unless he makes himself known. By definition and by his nature, he's so beyond what we are that our conceptions of him are way less accurate than your dog's conception of you or an ant's conception of you. Our thoughts of God are at best silly, small, insufficient, inadequate. They're, they're fat crayon drawings. Anselm said, God is that than which none greater can be conceived. And I said, speak plain English. Let me try it again. God is that than which none greater can be conceived. Okay, let's translate. You cannot think great enough thoughts to properly conceive of God. If you can think it, it's not great enough. His power, way beyond your biggest conception of power. His size, way bigger than your greatest conception of size. His age, his eternity, incomprehensible. I remember when Israel first tried to get his head around the idea of eternity. So God didn't have a beginning? Yes. That doesn't even make sense. Why not? Everything has a beginning and an end. I know. Everything that you and I know in the whole universe has a beginning and an end. We're talking about something in a different category than everything else. In fact, that's the definition of holy, isn't it? There's three definitions of holy. Holy is that which is so other and unlike anything else that it alone is holy. God alone is holy. And then the other two definitions are connected to that thing. Holy also means dedicated or devoted to God, and it also means morally pure like God. But the main meaning of holy is outside our boxes, completely other, unknowable. John says it this way, no one has ever seen God. You haven't thought God, you haven't seen God, you can't know God. It's not, a, it's not meant to be depressing, it's just meant to say, He's so great, and you are of a kind of creature. The gap is too wide. So how are we then to understand Christian faith, Christian doctrine, Christian beliefs? Because we have, we have to talk, right? Preachers have to say intelligible things about this being. And, and we talk with such certainty. We talk like we are sure and we have no doubts. We talk like there's no mystery. We talk like we're the experts, but who is an expert on God? 
But we preachers talk with such certainty. And I think the reason we talk with such certainty is because we think you want us to be sure of that which we're not sure of. To make you feel better. So all together we can be sure. But faith by definition is about something beyond our understanding. Something from beyond has made them himself known. And it's worth talking about. But I don't think my thoughts about God are God. They're at best like signs on the road. They point in the direction of a thing. Can you imagine standing in front of the sign that says Seaford 10 miles and going, what a pathetic little town that is. It's green and flat and rectangular and it's on two poles. Yeah, I've visited Seaford. It's not that impressive. But the sign matters, doesn't it? Our words about God, are, are, they matter. They, we have to use words. But I think it's important to recognize we're dealing with a being so beyond, so other, so mysterious that our words are pathetically inadequate. Our songs, inadequate. Our prayers, inadequate. Church services, inadequate. Isaac Watts trying to process this whole Christmas thing because this is a big deal, guys. This Christmas miracle is a way bigger deal to me. I don't have a hard time conceiving of Easter resurrection. It makes sense. Okay. He died. He woke back up. That's not hard for me to believe. What's hard for me to get into my head is Christmas. What are you talking about? Eternal, all-powerful. I don't get it. Isaac Watts. Our God contracted to a span. Incomprehensibly made man. Now that stretches my brain. I believe it, I proclaim it, I live by it, but I don't understand it. And by the way, there's tons of Christmas heresies. The first three, four hundred years of the church was all about Christmas heresies. And you go, Christmas heresies, what do you mean? People in the church saying the wrong thing about Jesus for 400 years. And the church trying to say, no, 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 that's not true, that's not right. If you believe that, that'll lead you astray. They would either emphasize his divinity only, or they would emphasize his humanity only. He was a good man, and then the Christ is the spirit that comes upon him and reveals how to live. He was God. He put on a meat a disguise. He was all, it was all God. The Arians believed he was just a good man, but the Christ came upon him. There was a time when he wasn't, and then God the Father created him. So Arius is over here emphasizing his full humanity of Jesus, but the divinity is, he's sort of just, wow, that's what's available if we'll listen to God the way he listened to God. Okay. And then over here, you got the Gnostics and Marcion and all these others that were like, he's, he's, it's God, but he wasn't, didn't. He pretended to be a human. He just pretended to be a human. The best thing is to get away from here. And they said, oh, the Old Testament was a different God. Because what kind of wicked God would, it, would create ugh, the physical world? Meanwhile, here's the truth. He was fully human and he was fully divine. The created physical world is a good gift. It's become corrupted with sin. It's meant to be in full union with the spiritual world. Yes, the spirit is good, but the flesh is weak. The goal is not 
Get me away from this disgusting meat sack so I can go to heaven. Going to heaven is not the gospel. God looks at a physical world and says, it's worth saving. It's worth redeeming. It's worth bringing it back to the purpose for which I created it. Are you with me? So Christmas is incomprehensible from a Greek perspective. By the way, this is a Greek perspective. Spirit is good. Body is bad. Jesus became a man. Gross. No way. Crucifixion is inconceivable from a Jewish perspective. What do you mean he's the Messiah? If he was the Messiah, he would have never been crucified because whoever's crucified is under the curse of God. And here's the truth right here. He is a full human. He is fully divine. Deal with it. It's just an offense to everybody. Christmas heresies are the first heresies. They spent, the church spent 400 years defending the truth about Jesus and the incarnation from Christians. The threat was inside for 400 years. Christians who said and prayed and sang and preached dumb stuff about the truth. I still think, by the way, that's, that's a bigger fight than those outside the church. We don't really have a fight with those outside the church. We expect them to be sinners. We expect them to believe the wrong thing. We, expect, we should expect them to do what they are going to do. The real fight is, can we be pure and can we be faithful and can we be on mission and not get sidetracked and distracted? Okay, here's what we've established so far. Can you know God if God doesn't make himself known? No. But God makes himself known. He comes, he shows up. In fact, he, goes, he doesn't just come on a temporary rescue mission. Was the incarnation temporary? Jesus has a body right now. He's a full human right now. There is a human in the second place in the eternal Godhead right now. And that's why you have access to the Father and that's why you can be God's kids. That and only that. So the church fathers for 400 years said, if he didn't really become one of us, none of us can be saved, period. They said, without the incarnation, we're all lost. They emphasized the incarnation just as much as they emphasized the cross and resurrection. How's that? That surprised me. I was, I was like reading church history, getting bored, going, can we talk about something else? And they're like, not until you guys stop preaching these lies. I'm a supernaturalist, which means I don't believe that physical matter is the only thing that exists. A materialist says, if I can't see it, touch it, put it in a test tube, it's not real. So a materialist would read the story of the resurrection of Jesus and say, uh, dead people don't rise. I've never seen dead people rise. You can't put that in a scientific repeated study and show uh, examples of them rising. Therefore, it should not. there's no intellectual justification for believing that anyone would rise. Therefore, when the New Testament says Jesus rose, we know that that's categorically false. Therefore, Jesus didn't rise. So you're starting with your materialist worldview assumptions and precluding the possibility of something that's outside of those assumptions. Are you with me? So you would expect, since... Many scientists have a materialist orientation. You would assume, would you not, that if you wanted to feed your faith in God, you would read Christian theologians, not materialist scientists. One of my favorite authors says the opposite is her experience. She said, when I read theologians, Madeline Langle, A Wrinkle in Time, she said, when I read theologians, they're so sure. They're not humble about it. They're sure and they're certain and they're right. And if you disagree with their drawing, then you're stupid and wrong. And, and they're dry. They're boring. 
They're sure, they're arrogant, they're rude and condescending. If you disagree with them, you're just wrong. They're constantly fighting and arguing over their little words, arguments about words. They're not inspiring, they're not funny, and they don't seem to have an openness to learn and to adventure and and, and grow and change. They've got it already figured out. They've mapped the Bible, they've defined it, they've logically worked within it, and they have concluded this is what truth is, this is God right here, and if you diverge from this, you're wrong. She said, it killed my faith. I almost wanted to walk away from the faith reading the theologians. But then I got around the scientists. And the scientists, they saw natural beauty. They saw the star systems. They saw animal life. They saw the geological record. They saw the ocean. And they were filled with awe and reverence and wonder for the mystery of life. And the, and the wonder and the awe drove them to want to explore and understand the how. They wanted to understand the how. There was an awe and a reverence and an inquisitiveness and an openness to having their ideas challenged. She said, the scientists made me believe in God. The theologians nearly killed my faith in God. No awe, no reverence, no wonder, no mystery. There's something about being mastered by something so much greater than us that touches the essence of what faith is. And I think a lot of us, we go to church to be told or reaffirm what we already know or already think or to hear the preacher be sure about what I'm unsure about so that I can just feel safe. But in my mind, we gather to stir up a sense of awe and wonder, not certainty, trust, to stir up a sense that what we have to do with in this mystery of life goes beyond, is is coming from a greater place to a lesser place. Life is issuing a call. There's this old John, John Mayer lyric that says, check your pulse. It's proof that you're not listening to the call your life's been issuing you. And I think that's what faith is about. Not the dry, dusty, suit-wearing certain theologians with their rules and their morality and their I've got God figured out, but rather a radical leaning into the mystery of that which is so beyond us that it's consumed us and given birth to everything we see with our eyes. But I walk into this Orthodox monastery and pictures everywhere and I don't know how many generations, but I could feel the accumulated generations of prayers and songs and intercessions. And you just had this feeling of coming into something old, something that long after I'm dead and gone, this place will still be oriented toward Jesus. And there's a sense of mystery involved in the thing. The liturgical churches seem to me to hint at the mystery in the faith. And we Protestants tend to reduce God to my ideas, my beliefs. So I walk into this monastery and instantly I break out in tongues, involuntarily. (sighs) Because the greatness of God, who is so beyond, is conveyed. I watched a a video yesterday of a guy who went to Western Wyoming 
on a camping trip to the Wind River Mountain Ranges. I sent my dad the GPS coordinates to the trailhead, and I said, can we go here? He walks this trail, creeks and streams, and here's a valley with these mountain ranges, and here's, here's the lake with the trout in it. And as he's walking this trail, he stops by this lake, and this is what he said. He said, this mountain range has just sucked me in. It grabs me by the collar and whispers, never leave. Stay here. He said, this is the kind of place that makes me reconsider all my life choices. It's like, yeah, why not just come up here and bring my wife and my dog and just like live in a cave and forage for lichen and berries with the squirrels. This is the kind of place that makes you want to dedicate your life to it. I love this mountain range. Okay, this man is closer to faith than many in church, right? I'm not saying go to the mountains instead of go here. I'm saying his, what he's experiencing is awe. The mountains, as beautiful as they are, they're a fat crayon drawing on the, on the refrigerator. But they point something somewhere. The beauty of the, of the Wind River mountain range in western Wyoming, they point beyond themselves. They are, they're issuing a call to him. There's extrinsic passion and intrinsic passion. Extrinsic passion would be like, when I was a kid, we were guilted into commitments to Jesus. Hey, heaven is real. Hell is real. You should be good. Come up here and get saved. You need to rededicate your life because if you don't, you're going to hell forever. Hey, uh, be, you do you fulfill your obligations to the community. We can't meet our budget if you don't give, so you better give. Shame on you if you don't do the following five things. Extrinsic motivators. Extrinsic motivators can create, you can, you can have passion Devotion, dedication from extrinsic motivators. There's a crisis in the family. There's a crisis in the country. There's a crisis in your town. And for a season, because of the crisis, because of an external motivator, you can give yourself fully to the thing. But those are extrinsic motivators. This guy out in Wyoming was experiencing intrinsic passion. The beauty of the mountains was calling to him. The thing about extrinsic motivations is they tend to not create harmonious relationships within the human. The more we're motivated in life with extrinsic passion, the more you find your life leaking away. It's not sustainable. And so I then, as a pastor, struggle to figure out what am I to try to help produce in you? Because I want to help raise the level of your hunger, your desire, your zeal, your passion for the Lord as high as I possibly can. But I want to be careful not to use external threats, threats of hell, threats of judgment, threats of wasting your life, threats of obligation and guilt and duty. Because I could, we, could, we could stir this whole community up for a minute, for a month, for three months, for a year, for two years, but it would be adrenaline-fueled but an intrinsic passion for yearning, the beauty, the enjoyment, 
with intrinsic passions, you do it for love of doing it. You, you find yourself doing it all the time because you love it, because you're drawn to it. I love C.S. Lewis so much. This old sort of um, grizzled army general raises his hand and he says, here's why I know you're an idiot. All your stupid theories about God, here's how I know they're, they're just stupid theories. I've experienced the mystery. Out in the desert at night when no one else is around, under the night sky, under the stars, I've experienced the mystery. So I don't believe all your little theories about God, who he is, what he approves of, who he likes and doesn't, what he did, what I have to believe about him. And Lewis says, you're right. My words about God are insufficient. They're just pointing toward the mystery that you experienced. If you were to move from what you experienced out there in the desert by, at night, from my thoughts or even your thoughts about the mystery, you would be moving from the real to the less real. It's like the ocean. You can sit next to the ocean and it is so majestic. Ocean's one of my favorite places to be. There was a study done of youngsters who fell away from the faith and almost all of them had urban environments. I don't know if that's a causal effect or a, a correlation, but there's something about being your whole life surrounded by human buildings, human thoughts, human video games, human stuff, everything human. It's good for the soul to be around things humans didn't make. I like to go to the beach because the ocean is so big and the sand is so, anything you build instantly goes away. I like to go there and feel small. I don't know of too many people who would stand by the, the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon and take a selfie and say, I'm awesome. I don't think, I, how many of us would stand next to that greatness, that scope, that majesty, and our thought would be, I'm awesome. No. You say, this is awesome. And you feel your smallness. You intentionally sign up to go somewhere to feel irrelevant. To experience beauty and wonder and mystery. To me, that's the faith. Not this tiny little thing that we have figured out as truth, but rather... Jesus showing up in a way that has completely taken me by surprise and I'm still in awe of it trying to figure it out. The theologian's going, well, somewhere over there is wrong and somewhere over there is wrong, but the mystery of reality is somewhere here. They don't define it. They just describe it. They don't trap it. They worship. They're not trying to master it. They're mastered by it. I got a master of divinity is my, is my degree. That's hilarious. Because guess what? There's no masters of divinity. Not one. So Carrie has been in conversation with this uh, other Christian, and the person is saying, you shouldn't baptize um, people under the age of 14 because they can't be disciples because they don't have the intellectual ability to count the cost and understand who Jesus is and what Jesus expects and requires. And she said, I remember understanding the cost and counting the cost when I was four. I, she says, I remember having genuine faith when I was four. 
And I said, oh, this is classic Protestantism. We have taken the faith and reduced it to beliefs. Beliefs are not the same thing as faith. The devil has beliefs, doesn't have faith. In fact, the demons believe and shudder. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What do you, who are the these? The, listen, if little kids and mentally impaired disabled people can have the kingdom, it must not primarily be about our ideas. It must be about this relating to this. Not about this mastering this. And by the way, I'm so grateful for this. Because he makes himself known. But not so we can master him, but so that we can have to do with him correctly. I started with St. Nick. On his feast day, there was a Catholic priest named Thomas Aquinas, and he was officiating the Lord's Supper in the year 1273. Aquinas has written more to help intellectually understand this than any other Catholic theologian. He was considered the doctor of the church, the genius of the church. And he's celebrating the Lord's Supper when he received a revelation that so affected him that he stopped writing from then on. He left his, his greatest work unfinished because of this experience. Brother Reginald, I don't know who Reggie is, but apparently he was bothered, and he said, uh, <clears throat> how come you're not finishing your book? And he said, I quote, the end of my labors has come. All that I have written appears to be as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. He's the, he's the guy with the experience in the desert at night going, I wrote a song about the Lord, but the song is not the same thing as the Lord. Should I even write? When later asked, again by Reggie, get back to work, he said, I can write no more. I have seen things that make my writing straw. He died three months later on his way to the Ecumenical Council of Lyon. John Crowder wrote this on Facebook the other day. He said, Advent signals the end of humanity's vain, impossible hopes of reaching up to God. Emmanuel has come to us, embracing us in the abyss of our darkness, our confusion, and our pain heralding unexpected joy. No one will know God unless God makes himself known.